0: Well, it's been some time since i put out an episode of Thinking Theology. I've been busy over the last few months working on a couple of books, one on the church and one on baptism that hopefully will be coming out next year. So keep an eye out for those. But in the last episode of Thinking Theology, we began to look at the actions of God, and we began with God's act of creation. God created everything that is on his own without help from anyone else. He made the world for his own sake and for his own purpose. He made it by speaking. He made it good. The world is separate from him, but it's completely dependent on him for its continued existence. And God's creation of the world also establishes his authority over us and our obligation to him. But what we didn't get to consider last time is how the Bible's account of creation fits with modern science. Genesis 1 says that God created the world in six days, but science says that the universe and the earth were formed over billions of years. The Bible says God created Adam and Eve from scratch, but science says that human beings have come through an evolutionary process from bacteria. What do we make of all that? How do the Bible and science fit together, especially with respect to creation? That's what we're thinking about in this episode— of Thinking Theology. Hi, my name's Carl Dennick. I'm a pastor, theologian, writer, and Bible College lecturer. Welcome to Thinking Theology, a podcast where we think about theology, the Bible, and the Christian life, not just for the sake of it, but so we can love God more with all our heart, soul, mind... And strength. One of the most controversial topics when thinking about the Bible and creation is how the Bible's account fits with science. In coming to terms with that question, it helps to first recognise some of the limitations of science as a discipline. First of all, it's worth pointing out that the situation with science is more complex than most people probably recognise. One of the problems, for example, that physicists face in looking at the universe is that galaxies in our universe appear to be spinning too fast. When you spin a weight on the end of a rope, the weight wants to fly off in its own direction. What keeps it spinning is you pulling on the rope. And what keeps galaxies together and from spinning out everywhere is gravity. But the problem for physics at the moment is that there is not enough mass in the galaxies that we see to keep them together, to keep them from spinning apart. So to solve that, physicists have postulated something called dark matter. Basically, that's a kind of matter that you can't see but still has mass. They think, in fact, that the universe is made up Of only around 4% of normal matter, and they come to that in order to make the equations work for galaxies holding together. The trouble is that they haven't actually been able to observe dark matter directly. That kind of situation within science is not particularly unusual. In fact, the situation with dark matter bears a remarkable similarity to what happened at the beginning of the last century. At the end of the 19th century, astronomers noticed that the orbit of Mercury was being disturbed by something. When classical physics couldn't explain what was going on, they had to introduce the idea of objects that they couldn't see, but that still had an effect. It's very similar in that way to the dark matter situation. They had to come up with or postulate things that they couldn't see in order to explain what they were observing. In that case, they hypothesized things like an inner asteroid belt or an undiscovered planet to try and solve the problem. But in fact, the problem was not actually solved until Einstein developed his theory of general relativity. It was then that they discovered that the science or the equations that they were using were not sufficient to explain what they were observing, and they needed Einstein's theory of general relativity to be developed. Scientists are hoping to observe dark matter, there's hope that the Large Hadron Collider in Europe will lead to its discovery, and they may discover dark matter or they may not. But the more time goes on without observing it, the more it begins to cast doubt on the present theory. The point here is not to say that dark matter is or isn't real. The point is rather to say that sometimes science believes it has an answer to things But it's not until more pieces of the puzzle are found that they begin to really understand how the world works. To give another example, a number of years ago an article appeared in Scientific American describing a potential crisis in physics regarding a related theory called supersymmetry. Physicists at the Large Hadron Collider are also looking for supersymmetric particles, some of which may hold the key to dark matter. And in that article, it was noted, If superpartners are discovered in the next run of the Large Hadron Collider, the current angst of particle physicists will be replaced by enormous excitement over finally breaching the threshold of the superworld. A wild intellectual adventure will begin. Yet if superpartners are not found, we face a paradigm rupture in our basic grasp of quantum physics. Already, this prospect is inspiring a radical rethinking of basic phenomena that underlie the fabric of the universe. The point is that there's uncertainty about the current theory. If the theory is proved right by observations and discoveries, then there'll be great excitement. But if what they're looking for is not discovered, it will mean the destruction and re evaluation of the reigning paradigm of how things are understood. Or consider this statement from another scientist. All of our observations find a complete symmetry between matter and antimatter, which is why the universe should not actually exist. Again, the point is that the current position of science is unable to explain all of what we see and observe. The basic point is that there is more uncertainty in science than people often realise or even often admit. There are lots of things scientists don't know, and there are lots of examples of science fundamentally rethinking its basic theories. That happened when Einstein developed his theory of relativity, and it happened with the development of quantum physics. In some ways, all science is provisional And the science of the beginning of the universe is more provisional than most. And that's because we're limited in our ability to observe what happened. We weren't there. We can look at, if you like, echoes in the universe as it currently is, or people can dig up fossil records and look at geological changes. And on the basis of that, people can make theories. But those theories are, in some sense, in many ways, very provisional. So the situation with the science is more complicated than is generally perceived, but there is still some useful things that can be said about Genesis and science without trying to say everything. A particularly helpful approach comes from Edgar Andrews in his book Who Made God. There he presents what he calls the scientific method. That is, often in science you start with a hypothesis and then you test it to see whether the world that you observe Fits that hypothesis. That's what physicists are doing with supersymmetry. They have a theory about the world, a hypothesis about how the world works, and they are observing the world to see whether their observations fit with that hypothesis. And Edgar Andrews says, What if we start with the hypothesis of the Bible that the world is as the Bible describes it, and then we test that hypothesis against the world that we experience? If we do that, the world that we find is surprisingly similar to the one the Bible describes. We can look at the Bible, we can look at Genesis 1, and although we may not be able to answer every how question, we can see that the world we observe is in many ways the kind of world that Genesis 1 would lead us to expect. So let me give some examples of that. First, Genesis 1 leads us to expect that the universe had a beginning. That might seem kind of obvious, but until about a century ago, no one much except Christians believed that the universe had a beginning. The reigning paradigm was of an eternal universe. In fact, Stephen Hawking called the idea that the universe had a beginning probably the most remarkable discovery of modern cosmology. Most non Christian religions think that the universe is eternal, mysterious, inconsistent, and unpredictable. Aristotle thought that the idea of the universe having a beginning was unthinkable. And it wasn't until last century that astronomers and physicists began to think that the universe had a beginning as well. Two scientists, Humanson and Hubble, discovered through observations that the universe appeared to be expanding. Separately, Einstein's theory of general relativity suggested something similar, even though Einstein himself initially rejected the idea. The idea of an expanding universe led to the suggestion that at one point all the matter in the universe exploded from some point. In other words, the universe had a beginning. It actually took many decades for people to accept that idea. Sir Arthur Eddington wrote in 1931, the notion of a beginning is repugnant to me. Sir John Maddox, a former editor of the journal Nature, described the idea of the universe having a beginning as thoroughly unacceptable. Now the idea that the universe had some kind of beginning, of course, is widely accepted. But on the basis of Genesis 1, the the fact that the universe had a beginning is exactly what we would have expected. As Arno Penzias, a physicist and Nobel Prize winner, wrote, the best data we have concerning the Big Bang are exactly what I would have predicted had I nothing to go on but the five books of Moses, the Psalms, and the Bible as a whole. Genesis 1 leads us to believe that the universe had a beginning, and there is considerable scientific evidence. To show that is true. Second, Genesis 1 leads us to expect a universe that is highly structured. Again, that might not seem particularly revolutionary because science has led us to conceive of the world as ordered and structured. But in comparison to ancient creation myths, the Bible's account is surprisingly clear headed. For example, In one ancient creation myth called the Enuma Elish, creation is the result of a kind of cosmic war between various gods. The earth is created from the body of a slain god called Tiamat. Half of her body becomes the sky. Things are constructed in her belly. Her eyes become the source of the Euphrates and Tigris rivers. Her nostrils are plugged up for some unknown reason. Human beings are made from the blood of another god who was killed. And the main reason that human beings are made is because the gods are lazy and want someone to do their work for them. In comparison, the account in Genesis 1 of the beginning of the world is highly structured as we saw in the last episode. It's structured in the way the days are arranged so that on one day the space is prepared and then on a corresponding day the things that inhabit that space are made. Not only that, the way each particular day unfolds is also very methodical. Take day three, for example. First God separates the water and the land, then he causes the land to produce vegetation. There are plants bearing seed and also plants bearing fruit with the seed in it. It's all very methodical and in some ways quite uneventful. The world that the Enuma Elish leads us to expect is is a world which is turbulent and nonsensical. In contrast, the world that Genesis 1 leads us to expect is a world that is highly structured, a world that is ordered and consistent. That is precisely the kind of world that we find, a world that follows physical laws and physical constants, a world that can be described with mathematical precision. In fact, That in itself is quite remarkable, as the Nobel Prize-winning physicist Eugene Wigner noted in his famous paper, The Unreasonable Effectiveness of Mathematics. He asked, why should it be that the world should be describable by numbers and equations that we simply seem to have made up in our heads? Why should there be a correspondence between human thought, mathematical truth, and physical reality? That is quite unexplainable from the viewpoint of philosophical materialism, the idea that matter is all there is. But the idea that mathematics can explain the world in which we live makes a lot of sense when we start with the hypothesis of the Bible and the idea of a world designed by a rational God in a rational way, a world made and ruled by that God. Third, Genesis 1 leads us to expect that the creation is just that. It's just the creation. It's not divine. It's created. As we saw with the Enuma Elish, ancient creation myths often presented a world that was made from the various parts of gods. Things like the sun and moon also were gods to be worshipped. In Egypt, the sun was the god Ra. But Here in Genesis 1, the sun is just the sun. It is literally a source of light. It's hardly a rigorous scientific description that we might expect today, but it is certainly a true description. In fact, that description almost seems boring compared with something like the Enuma Elish, where so much of the world is the bits and pieces of various gods. The physicist Stephen Barr in his book Modern Physics and the Ancient Faith, writes, It's often said that science disenchanted the natural world in the sense of depersonalizing it and desacralizing it, that is, making it non-mystical. But to a large extent, that had already happened with the Hebrew Bible. The universe was no longer alive with gods, but was a work of cosmic engineering. In short, We may not be able to answer every scientific question, but we can say at least that the world that we see is the kind of world that we would expect to see on the basis of Genesis 1. I said before that Genesis 1 shows us at the very least that the world had a beginning. Of course, what kind of beginning that was is a more complex question. There's considerable debate among Christians concerning the nature of the six days described in Genesis 1. The major views are, first, the normal day view, that is, six chronological days of 24 hours each. Second, the day age view, that the days are of indefinite duration, maybe thousands or millions or billions of years, but still represent the chronological pattern of God's creative process. And third, the framework view that the days are a literary device and present topics more than a chronological sequence. The best approach, to my mind, is the normal day view. It's sometimes argued that because Genesis 1 is so highly structured, it must be poetic and therefore not literal. But Genesis 1 doesn't contain any of the normal features of Hebrew poetry, And just because it's highly structured, or even poetic, doesn't mean that it isn't a true account. Wilfred Owen, for example, wrote poems about the First World War, but the fact that he wrote about history in poetry doesn't mean that his poems are not about real things. So to the continual reference to morning and evening, while stylistic, tends to suggest actual days. There was evening and there was morning the second day. Moreover, later in the Bible, God's six-day pattern of work, followed by one day of rest, becomes a model for human work and rest. And that suggests that the days ought to be understood as real days. Otherwise, it's not particularly clear in what way we're imitating God by following that pattern of work and rest. The biblical account then leads me to think of the days in Genesis 1 as six normal days, and I think there's enough uncertainty in the science of origins of the universe to allow for that as a real possibility. But perhaps more problematic than the age of the earth is the evolutionary view of the creation of mankind. It's important to realise that a long term view of the six days of creation does not necessarily entail an evolutionary view of the creation of human beings. That is, as the theologian John Frame points out, a figurative view of the days does not as such warrant an evolutionary view of man's ancestry, nor does it compromise the literal historicity of the fall of Adam and Eve or any of the truths concerning our new creation in Christ. Nevertheless, some Christians hold to an evolutionary view of creation— But there are a number of problems created by that view. First, it requires death before the fall. But Romans 5 says that death entered the world through the sin of Adam and Eve, and that sin brought death and decay not only to human beings, but to the whole of creation, as Paul says in Romans 8. In other words, death, even of animals, is a result of human sin, which was not part of God's original creation. Second, it potentially denies the existence of an historical Adam and Eve, and the rest of the Bible clearly considers that Adam and Eve are real historical figures. Some scholars get around that by maintaining that God created animals through evolution, but then at some point in time intervened to identify or create in some way unique individuals from whom the whole human race descended. So, for instance, the biologist Dennis Alexander sees Adam and Eve as merely the start of a spiritual family. But as Frame points out, the creation of human beings in Genesis 2-7 is a special act of God taking dust, rather than an already living creature, and giving it life. Third, the repetition of according to their kinds suggests that God established boundaries between species— rather than everything coming from the same genetic pool. For that reason, it seems that an evolutionary view of human and animal origins is quite problematic because it undermines a number of important biblical truths. In fact, an evolutionary view of origins is much more problematic, say, than a view of an old universe. So how does the account of creation in Genesis 1 and 2 relate to science? Well, we need to start by recognising that much science is provisional, especially the science of the origins of the universe. Nevertheless, much of what science asserts affirms what we would expect on the basis of the Bible's account of creation. But while it's helpful to understand how science and creation fit together, the most important theological truths are those that we covered in the last episode. That creation is the sole act of God. That God made it for His own sake and for His own purpose. That God made the world just by speaking. That the world is separate from God but depends on God. That God made the world good. And that God's creation of the world establishes His authority as well as our significance, our purpose, the pattern of our lives and our need to trust God in the mystery of life. That's it for this episode of Thinking Theology. In the next episode, we'll be continuing to think about the actions of God. We'll be thinking about God's ongoing work of caring and providing for his creation. Please join me then.